Just a warning, this episode contains discussions of sexual assault, PTSD, and the depiction of graphic content. Some of these themes may be triggering, so listener discretion is advised. Recently, a former NFL player, John Bond, disclosed that he faced years of sexual abuse from the University of Michigan's athletics director, Robert Anderson. And he wasn't the only one. Other young men who were athletes at the university from the late 1960s to early 2000s also faced sexual abuse from Anderson. This is not new. This is the Jerry Sandusky case all over again. I think one thing is that it's still shocking to hear that men and boys can still be sexually abused and sexually assaulted. When you say it's shocking, do you mean that it's just unexpected that men and boys would be victims of sexual assault? Yeah, I think it's that for the most part, society doesn't want to believe that men can be victims of sexual assault because there's this overarching belief that if you can protect yourself, if you're not weak, you're not going to be sexually assaulted. That belief is just sort of, um, it's kind of one of those like historically, right? We, we always feel as though the female, the woman, the girl is the victim of the sexual assault because they can't defend themselves, right? The man overpowers them and this and that, but anybody can be a victim of sexual assault. They can. And overpowering somebody doesn't always have to come in physical strength. That's For right. example, yeah. Jerry Sandusky or Robert Anderson. These are men that have a power over these young men. They have influence. Yeah, I mean, they're basically taking advantage of these young men and boys. It's manipulation. It's, it's control. Right. It's control. That's right. And it's an abuse um, of power. Jerry Sandusky is a former Penn State assistant football coach who retired in 1999 and in 2011 was indicted on over 50 counts of sexual abuse of young boys. Someone who interacted in the late 70s as a child with Sandusky at one point came forward with his story about his experience with being a victim of child sexual abuse and sex trafficking. We spoke to Greg Buccheroni a community support specialist with Town Watch Integrated Services with the city of Philadelphia and a crime victim advocate volunteer. We caught up with Greg while he was working one night. And here's what he had to say. Greg Butcheroni, um, 50, going to be 58 in April, years old. I'm from Philadelphia, PA. Growing up, uh, you know, I grew up pretty much for the most part of my life in a single parent household. My dad wasn't really in my life the way my dad should be. And my mom was struggling to put food on the table for me and my five siblings. And, um, you know, we're here. Obviously, at some point in the 70s, I was very vulnerable. And my mom tried to put me into programs that 
first she put me in the Cub Scouts when I was about probably seven years old. And the Cub Scouts, I guess that's where it started because it created a promiscuous behavior for at-risk children. When I was there, uh, they were, there was a couple of the scout leaders that were giving us alcohol, let us look at porno magazines, and then take, would take us out to camping trips. And then when we came back, we're checking us for hernias and ticks. So they'd make us one by one go into uh, the bathroom area, take, get naked, and keep in mind, I'm a seven-year-old kid, so I don't really know what's going on. And these are trusted people, and they're saying they're checking us uh, for ticks and hernias. I was pretty naive. I was already pretty much an at-risk child at age seven because of poverty and, and maybe coming from a broken household and some other issues going on in my life. Then the guy would, afterwards, they, one guy owned an ice cream shop, one of the scout leaders, and he would take us to get ice cream. And, uh, and then he had a trailer, like one of those big mobile home trailers outside his house. And he would let us eat the ice cream in there, give us cigarettes. I pretended like I smoked cigarettes. I didn't at the time, but we would drink beer and, and some stronger alcohol. And he'd let us look at porno stuff. And then at some point he would talk about masturbation and it's natural and that he would masturbate in front of us and try to give us massages. And uh, nothing really happened with me beyond that because at some point, my grandmother found out and she made a big scene and then I wasn't allowed to go to the Cub Scouts no more. And, but what happened was that so when I decided in 2011, I decided to publicly speak about my victimization between the year from the 70s going into 1980. And I'm trying to make sense of where things started, you know, because there were so many incidents where I was a victim of human trafficking, not during the, the Cub Scout situation, but things that led up afterwards to develop that put me into another at-risk youth program that where it started out with one guy and then the guy would have friends and with other programs. And then uh, we were vulnerable because of poverty. And a lot of times we ran away from home. And uh, so we're in survival mode. This was a way to what we called street hustling. And then they used kids to recruit kids. And then eventually they used us to recruit other kids with the promise of a party lifestyle. And we, they didn't say, hey, recruit these kids and let's go out there and we're going to molest them. What they said is they got kids and like we runaways hang with runaways. And then we, you know, you got beer and weed and they hang out at these little parties in the neighborhoods and you get to meet other at-risk children, whether they're runaways or they just have issues going on at home. Then the we would introduce them and then I would tell them like, you know, to how I was introduced that this guy would give you some money if you were willing to do something, even though it was probably small things. And, uh, and then, you know, you make the choice you want to do it or not. And these were children uh, at risk, just like myself. And they use kids to recruit kids. But I, in 2011, I decided to probably come out and talk about it. And it was very hard to do. And I was trying to make sense of where it all began. And I started going to therapy with an organization in Philadelphia called Women Organizing Against Rape War. And because so many, the human trafficking then happened between 1976 and 1980. And I said, well, maybe this is where everything began. And it's, it's hard when you're using drugs and alcohol as a small child, adolescent. You know, to remember back memories that you don't want to remember and that for decades you try to block out because you, I self blamed myself 
and I was ashamed of it. And I thought people would think I was gay and all that stuff. So I didn't want to remember memories. I remember certain things that were most painful to me, but there was a lot of memories and a lot of trafficking between numerous people. I would say a couple hundred times between 1976 and 1980. So I initially thought that was the foundation. You know, I met this guy and then I'm thinking, but I was, before I met this guy, I was involved in promiscuous uh, behavior anyway, smoking weed and drinking and playing hooky from school and shoplifting. And I'm thinking, where did this, per and then, you know, promiscuous with women, uh, young girls my age, and where did, where did this come from? And then the therapy, you know, we talked about, was there any priest that molested us? I said, well, you got with priests, you have to go to church to be molested, and we wouldn't go to church. My mom gave us money to go to church. We would take that money, walk into the church. My mom would leave, and then we'd walk out the side door, buy some weed, and, and go play video games or shoot pool. So, like, I wouldn't hang in church. Priests molesting us, unless they had money, you know, we, we would do something for money. I wasn't giving out freebies, and if someone came up and didn't have money, we would beat them up and rob them. And I think that's the beginning when I was about seven, eight years old, that set the foundation for eventually moving forward and, and somehow being manipulated by these guys in this other program called the South Philly Boys Club, which was a program for at-risk boys that were adjudicated through the court system, the juvenile justice system, to uh, work with at-risk boys to turn the negatives into positive. And there... That was, if I was a fire, that was definitely the gasoline, sprinkling gasoline on the fire, and things escalated quickly. Then uh, that would be the beginning, and then they would traffic us. Eventually, once the drugs and alcohol, because I'm not gay, so we would, a lot of the street, street tough boys that were adolescent that were caught into this, we would use drugs and alcohol to name, numb our humanity, because we did not feel... This was not a natural act with us, for us. It was a survival act, and we were felt dirty and disgusted and ashamed. Each time we did it, that's where the drugs and alcohol came that they provided us. Turned out with one guy, starting out one guy, and then one guy turned into two guys, then turned into three guys, and then they would take us to trips to Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, when the casinos first opened up and there was high rollers, and pornography establishments that were at the time in, in New York City, Times Square, Philadelphia, and different parts of South Jersey, including Land City. Trip Stephen, there was one time we went down to, well, we went to Washington, D.C. a few times, but there was specific one time in 79 that we went to, it was an after party uh, where Ronald Reagan, they were considering uh, having, talking, the initial get-together was a wine and cigar night talking politics, who's going to be the Republican candidate for president of the United States. And uh, we weren't allowed into that function. But after there, there was an after function that we were in someone's town home in Washington, D.C. And we were taken there for the purpose of, we called it kid swapping, where we came with a certain individual and these other guys came from other areas of, of the East Coast or wherever. And they had a, a practice called kid swapping where these adult men that were involved in trafficking kids or sexually abusing them, the children were not having sex with each other, were having sex with adults, and, but they get to play with one adult's kids and the other, and the other, and 
they swapped the kids and then they were giving us money and drugs in return for sexual deviant acts. And, uh, you know, that went all the way and stuff like that continued uh, with the socialites. Like uh, we went to parties in, in, in New York City to these philanthropy events or fundraiser events or socialite events or people running for office and political stuff. And we got caught up in all that stuff. And just like with Ronald Reagan in Washington, D.C., he was there. He was not involved in the after party, but it was on his behalf when he was considering running to become the president of the United States. And they will all get together and who they're going to back as the Republican candidate. And George Bush Sr. was there at the initial party. And then afterwards, the after party, which was at a different location, George Bush Sr. and Ronald Reagan were not there. However, people that were friendly with them were there. And, uh, you know, the people that were backing them, like uh, what I call power brokers, they were there. And, you know, it just like, it, it just goes on and on, you know, and this went on until 1980. Uh, like I said, a, a, I would say a minimum of several hundred times between 76 and 1980. I blame that initial promiscuous behavior on what happened to me in the Cub Scouts and then things elevated from there. Penn State football games. Uh, we did not know the guys, Jerry Sandusky. We knew him as Coach Jerry. And what happened was him and the South Philly Boys Club, uh, my main offender was Edward Savitz. Uh, on the street, we knew we knew Edward. I knew him because he was my advocate in the, in the program as Edward Savitz. But a lot of the kids called him Fast Eddie. We knew Sandusky, not as Jerry Sandusky, but Coach Jerry. And these guys were take at risk kids that were involved in some of these programs. When you decided not to stop running away from home and you go back home, you have to go back into these programs through the uh, family court juvenile justice system. And when we went back to the programs, even though it doesn't matter at this point, whether you're on the street or in the program, these are the same traffickers involved with me. They would take you to Penn State football games or philanthropy events in state college on behalf of uh, St. Dusky's charity, which was the second mile charity. I didn't like football. If I went to a football game, I went there to start trouble and then or to meet men. And the reason I went to meet men is not because I had homosexual intentions, because I knew I, we could make money off them. And then with that money, do drugs and alcohol and go out and buy stuff and hang with our other friends to go out and just do stuff that kids do to get in trouble. And you need money for weed and you need money for beer. And we meet girls. We're going to need some money for them to go buy them something. And uh, how do you get money when you growing up in poverty and you're many times you're in and out living on the streets? This became a cash cow for us. Uh, no one ever put, put a gun to our heads, but yeah. they did exploit our vulnerability and they exploited and it twisted our minds where right is wrong or wrong is right. I mean, that's how twisted our minds were as a young adolescent and even pre-adolescent. Greg, you said your grandma found out about what was happening in the Cub Scouts. I'm curious, how, how did she find out? She lived across the street from where the guy had the trail. And he had the ice cream store. It was on the 1400 block. It was a next door gas station. It was called Derrick Green. So kids were coming in and out of this trailer. that was It was like a, a, a mobile trailer home that he could move. It was parked right across the street from my grandma's house. And I would sneak in there because I'm not supposed to be 
smoking cigarettes. And keep in mind, I'm seven, eight years old. I'm not supposed to be smoking cigarettes or drinking beer or looking at porno magazines. Definitely not talking about masturbation, why guys are masturbating in front of you. So my grandma found out. I don't know how she found out. She came banging on the trailer door. And the guy opened up and said, I wasn't there, but my grandma was this tough old Italian lady. So she pushed him out the way and found me there. And and of course, she's hit me with the broom. And then, and she told my mom, and I just denied it. I said, Oh, I'm just in there. I just stopped by. But really, you know, I've been going there multiple times. To our mind, he was a cool guy. He would give you money. This is the Cub Scout leader. You know, we could get, he had an ice cream plate. So you could get all the ice cream you wanted and water ice and, French fries, and all you had to do was go there and you get whatever you want. And for a kid that young, and then we would drink beer and look at porno magazines. Like, I didn't know. You ever watch the cartoon Beavis and Butthead? Yep. So we were like yeah. the three adolescent Beavis and Buttheads. And, you know, you see magazines, you're laughing, giggling. And then we would talk about what we would do to these girls. Keep in mind, we we wouldn't know what to do with them if they came, these girls in the porno magazines. But, we, you know, boys talk stuff, and yeah. we had a vivid imagination, and, you know, things happen. So this guy was the cool guy to hang out. So anyway, my grandma found out. She hit him with a broom, hit me. She went, now this Cub Scout thing was inside a Catholic. The, the program itself was based out of St. Richard's Church, which was a couple blocks away. There's the church that I was supposed to be going through, but I told you in the beginning, my mom would give us money and we were going one door and out the other. And and this was in that church in in the annex building for that church. And so my grandmom, she didn't go to the cops. She she went to the priest and told him his name was father Morley and he didn't do anything. He said he was going to take care of it. Uh, He didn't do anything, but I was told I wasn't allowed to be part of that no more because I denied and he, at the time, I was ashamed and embarrassed. So of course. Plus, I didn't want my, you know, my uncles to beat me up or people think I was gay. Right. So, so I just denied and said I was there, but I was doing far more than just there. I'm an adult and I'm a grandfather now, and I'm an activist in the city of Philadelphia that advocates for victims. I work for the city of Philadelphia, but I also volunteer. I've been doing it for decades, advocating for victims of crime, uh, specifically children. And a lot of people didn't know what was my motivation other than being a concerned citizen. But my motivation was when I was a child, I was a victim of the streets and I was sexually abused and raped many times and trafficked. And I I never told anyone until 2000. I mean, in 1980, we told the cops, but they didn't care. But in 2011, I decided, you know, I got it when I saw Sandusky and the Penn State case when it first came. We thought he had died of cancer. Because sometimes you bump into people that you grew up with and mm-hmm. they say, oh, this one died. Or, you know, whatever happened to this one, what happened to that one? And uh, when I, when we brought up Coach Jerry and the guy, well, we brought up the guy that was the football coach at that college and, and state college. And we're talking about Jerry Sandusky, but we didn't know his last name. We just knew Coach Jerry. And they said, oh, that one died of cancer. This one, you know, died. This one's in jail. So you just kind of leave it be. And say, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to publicly come out in, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s because I don't want no one to know of my past because I moved on in life. I'm, you know, I moved on and I've got grandchildren and no one knows. I mean, they know I had a rough paper route and I was, you know, a tough kid, but they don't know that I was a victim of, of child sexual abuse, rape and trafficking. And I didn't want people to know because I was ashamed and I still blamed myself. I didn't blame them. I blamed me. 
And by they, do you mean your family? Society. My family, society in general. Society, if a guy, first of all, they don't see men of boys, especially street tough boys, as victims when it comes to sexual abuse and trafficking. They just, oh, well, you were a kid and you got caught up in this. No one put a gun to your head. So maybe you're gay and you don't know it or, you know, you did this. And for a lot of years, I bought into that society's thing of what a man's supposed to be and what a man isn't supposed to be. And so I blamed myself and I just buried it. But it was scars. They never healed. And when the Sandusky case, I was in a, in a restaurant in Center City, Philadelphia in 2011. And the Penn State came. It was all over the news. And I just broke out and started crying because I had a close friend of mine that committed suicide. That And, and you know, Sandusky coerced and grown me. He kind of groped me, fondled me a little bit. And he looked at nude photos and wanted to teach me how to take a shower. And the guy, Edward Savage, said that I would get $200 if I let the guy you know, spend the night with the guy or spend a couple hours with the guy. But that never that never escalated as far as me. It never escalated beyond the groping and looking at like a nude Polaroid instamatic pictures and stuff. Nothing ever escalated beyond that and just talking sexual and grooming and coercing with Sandusky. Nothing happened. But my friend, he actually spent a weekend in Sandusky's house in State College because uh, he was a big football fan of Penn State and everything. And he, he was supposed to, thinking about, like they were telling him, well, you know, we can induce you to these football people and the Eagles. And I know all these football celebrities. So my friend Joey was very interested in that, even though he was a trouble boy too. And he decided to spend the weekend. And when he came back, it was his emotion, his his demeanor and his emotional self became started diminishing. He started doing more drugs and alcohol, becoming violent. And then at some point, he, he told me that that Sandusky had uh, stuck his finger in his rectum and, and oral sex on him, and, and some other things he didn't want to talk about. But I, but I'm guessing it has to do with some type of. Uh, anal sex or something to that effect. Then he started doing more heavier drugs. As he got older, he was being arrested, you know, a series of violence and domestic violence and doing drugs. And then um, back in the late nineties, he told me he didn't want to live anymore. Uh, we, we didn't talk about, we made a, a blood oath after 1980 that we wouldn't talk about or, you know, what happened to us. We would just, you know, that we would back take it to our grave. But my friend told me he didn't want to live no more. And he would overdose a couple of times. And then finally he did overdose. And I, they said, well, it was a drug overdose. But I remember he told me they wanted to kill himself. And only three weeks later, he's died of a drug overdose. And I blamed Coach Jerry for that. And how so when I saw him, what's that? I was going to ask you how old your friend was at the time that he. Oh, he was at this point, he, he was an adult. He was, okay. he was, well, he would have to be in his late twenties, early thirties by that. Wow. And my uh, guess probably late twenties, early thirties. And he just didn't have an easy life. He didn't want to talk about it, uh, but we made a blood oath, like, you know, stupid things that boys do. You, you cut each other's fingers and take a blood oath. And you said, we wouldn't talk about it no more. And we didn't for decades. But then fast forward 2011, I'm in this restaurant and then this comes up and I become, it's almost like there's 
a thousand pounds on my chest and I can't breathe. I felt thought I was having a heart attack and I just started crying and I left. I didn't want to see people see me cry because I'm the straight up guy. And I realized this guy's not only is he not dead. And we told, we told the cops about him. We didn't give his name. We said coach Jerry. It was a football coach and some college called state college. Uh, we thought Penn state was state college. We thought that was the name of the college. Keep in mind, we were just dumb kids. You know, we didn't know any better. And in 1980, I had beat up Edward Savage and robbed him. And he called the police and we were, I was eventually arrested with some other kids. And, you know, eventually he told the cops he didn't know who I was. And I broke into his house and beat him up and robbed him. So I, initially I did not cooperate with the police, but they held me for eight and a half hours. And then eventually, uh, you know, I told him, well, look, you know, I know this guy and I beat him up and robbed him, but I didn't break into his house. So I told, I told the cops and at first they didn't believe me, but then they went back and interviewed the neighbors and the neighbors said that I had been going in and out of there with other boys for years and that he was molesting these kids and giving them weed. And, but, you know, this guy was a millionaire and he was a philanthropist and he had connections to all the politicians and, so nothing happened. They, they pretty much didn't believe us. And they told us to get it. They cut us loose from the police station without even calling our parents. And initially in 1980, but I told them about Coach Jerry because they were asking questions. Who else is involved? And sometimes, a lot of times with the ones that you don't frequent often, you don't really know their names. You just know a nickname or a first name. They're not saying, hey, my name is. Joe Blow, and this is where I live, and I'm married, because they don't want you to know, because they're not supposed to be doing this stuff with us. Edward Savage, I knew him, because he was like a guy that we encountered on a regular basis over a four-year period, and he was my advocate through this youth program, but some of these other guys were just casual acquaintances, and whatever name they told us, that's the name we, we knew him as, uh, whether it was a nickname or a first name basis, and uh, with St. Dusky, I only encountered him a couple times, and then other than, like I said, the groping and fondling and grooming and coercing and offering some money, nothing other than that escalated with me. And uh, But I told them no one believed me. So when the St. Dusky case came in 2011, I just broke out and I knew I had to tell. You know, I just couldn't breathe. I thought I was having a heart attack and I was crying. And, it, you know, a street tough guy that, you know, we don't cry. And I was crying. And I couldn't stop. I became very emotional. For the next couple months, I so I needed help. And who do you go? Because you can't go to people that don't understand because they'll think, well, you're gay or, or it's so dirty of a story. They don't want to hear it because it's disgusting. So there was uh, at the time the archdiocese was big in the news before state college. And they were saying anyone who was a victim of sexual abuse as a child can go to women organized against rape and they'll say free counseling. And I was scared to go to Women Organized Against Rape because straight tough guys don't want to admit that they were raped. They were rape victim as a child. So that word rape terrorized me. I was totally terrorized to even bring talk about rape or anything else. What I wound up doing was I um, would call them and then hang up. And they would like, hey, Women Organized Against Rape, can I help you? And I'd hang up. Then they would call me again. I would go there and knock on the door and go in there and then I'd turn around and leave. And this went on again, off again a couple of times. And I didn't know how, what to do and who to go to. So finally, 
I mustered up a special type of courage. And how I explained it to law enforcement was it would have been easier to get in the ring with Mike Tyson and let him beat the hell out of me than would to go into a, an organization to say I was a victim of rape as a child and that I had sex with all these different men and trafficking. So it would have been easy just going to ring and let Mike Tyson beat the hell out of me. So it took a special type of courage to go there to start talking. And then there was so much that I wanted to talk about. I didn't know where to begin. There's certain memories that you remember, and then there's other memories that you struggle with. And then what came first? Did this happen first? Did that happen? Because this happened decades past. And I did. I really tried to do society's thing, mean man up and move on. And uh, so you forget a lot of things. And then through therapy, you start bringing up things that trigger and, and then you start focusing. And after years of therapy, you know, I made sense of what happened and when it happened and who was involved, at least the ones that I know. What actually made you finally say, okay, I'm going to go in this time. I'm going to talk to a counselor. I was at the time I was in a relationship 2011 because keep in mind in 1980, we told the cops, no one cared. They treated us as were the criminals and the people that were the, and the guys who were trafficking or molesting, they were, since they were prominent figures in society, they were treated as victims and we were the criminals. So I didn't, so I told no one cared, uh, didn't trust anyone. So in 2011, what made me bring it up? My friend died. Plus, I, I, I don't know. It's, it just when the Sandusky case came, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I towered out a few times going to women organized against rape because I was terrified to tell people that I was a victim of, I was raped and doing all this. I didn't want no one to know because I was ashamed and I was blaming myself. Then there was a politician that got on CNN and said these horrible things and this kids and who could do that to a kid. And I remember this politician was one of the guys that was soliciting me and my friends at one of these parties these political type parties in Philadelphia back in the, in the late seventies, you know, if I told anyone, no one would believe me anyway. So I was contemplating doing a violent act to that person. And I was really thinking about it because I, I have so much pain in my heart that thinking about my friends that are dead or murdered or committed murder uh, and lives were all destroyed because of people that exploited us during our, our vulnerable adolescent years that I was thinking about doing a violent act on this person and I really needed help. So I finally just took the courage, took deep breaths and finally forced myself to go through that door to get therapy. And I have no regrets now. It saved my life because I'd be in prison right now if it wasn't for women organized against rape because I would have done something bad to that person. So I just, I was just like, I couldn't breathe and I couldn't sleep and I was going through depression. And there was other times I was triggered, but I wasn't willing to talk about it. I wasn't ready. And it's weird because people said, well, how come you don't talk about it? It's not an easy thing to talk about. It is now because I've received years of therapy. And as an activist, I go out to try to do what I can to help victims and survivors. But back then I didn't look at, I didn't want no one to know. I, I blamed myself and I was ashamed. So I help people, but I wouldn't tell them why. And I would avoid certain things and go find somewhere to live a lie. And I was tired of living that lie. So I, I mustered up the courage and got help through women organized against rape. 
Do you think that now there are more organizations that are available, especially for men to come forward when they've had a similar experience? Absolutely. When people look at me now, I'm like Al Bundy from Marriage with Children. But back <laughs> going to the 70s, I was Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back Door. I was a skinny little right. Italian kid with hair and gift and gab and straight smart. And, you know, these guys had to think for it. Uh, yes, but answering the question, yes, because back then, the boy was involved in some type of sexual deviant act with an adult male. It was considered a gay-related incident. And society just saw it as gay. Boys can't be victims. Or if the person is prominent, then they, they say that these kids are incredible enough. Because like, people came out against the church decades back, but they would go up and, and they say, well, this is a priest. No way this priest or this politician or this coach, football coach could be involved in that. These kids are just saying this. And they because a lot of kids that were victims of this were children with challenged past and, and broken homes and stuff mm-hmm. in and out of the juvenile justice center system. So, hey, they're not credible. These kids would say anything. And so the kids were treated as the criminals and especially those who were victims of human trafficking on the streets. Uh, we were treated as criminals and the offenders were treated as victims. But the, yes, today, to answer your question, there are a lot because it's more social media and the world's becoming close. It's more talked about now, but back in the 70s and 80s, it was not talked. It was not the manly thing to talk about. So a lot of men that were victims of child sexual abuse stayed quiet because you were gay. If you talked about it, you were gay and you wanted it. Just like a lot of women to go to college, try not to talk about it because when the women go, especially if it's against a prominent person, if you watch some of these high profile cases that go on now, they totally destroyed a woman trying to get her credibility destroyed and trust words. And they come out and say, this person's a prominent person. You wanted this to happen. And they blame the woman, the way she was dressed or the way she looked. And same thing goes with boys. So, but now there's plenty of programs out there uh, because times have changed and technology and social media that there's more help for boys today. There was zero help back in the seventies and eighties. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Uh, the work you do now, advocating. Well, I, oh, my advocate, my city job, I deal with youth safety at, at rec centers and schools. And that's my pay job. Okay. My volunteer thing, stuff that I do as an advocate is I go out there and work with at-risk kids to turn negatives into positives. Educate people. Now I educate parents on what to look out for, for sexual abuse and trafficking. Especially when it comes to boys, people think that boys can't be trafficking. And I break that wrongful stereotype that they can be. We also deal with victims of crime that were like shooting victims and mugging victims and things of that nature too. So that's my passion. I'm a volunteer victim advocate, crime victim advocate in the city of Philadelphia. And I've been doing that since 1985. Oh, wow. That's a long time. I came out the army. Yeah. I went in the army. I committed some crimes and eventually they were considering charging me as an adult when I turned 17. Keep in mind, uh, during my adolescent years uh, and, and teenage years, I was a general practitioner of crime. So, yes, we, we did this stuff, the trafficking and, and, and all that. But we also stole cars and committed other type of crimes and robbed people. And that carried over. Even my victimization ended when, right before I turned 15. But my behavior, health and mentality, behavioral mental state was so destroyed and, and diminished 
that I didn't have value for myself or others. So I would go out. I couldn't rob an innocent person, but we would go out criminal versus criminal and go rob criminals and carry traffic guns and drugs and beat people and things that children should not be involved in. And eventually I got locked up several times. But the last time I turned 17 and they were considering uh, charging me as an adult and I was facing three to five years if I was convicted in, in state penitentiary, which would have been Rollway State Penitentiary in New Jersey. There was a guy, what I do as an advocate now, there was a guy back then that said, you're a good kid. You're just surrounded by negative energy and you're making poor choices. So he made a deal with the army recruiter for me to go into the army. And, you know, I was hesitant at the time because I was Vinnie Barbarino and I wanted to smoke weed and mess with girls and go to the beach mm-hmm. and, you know, get in trouble. Yeah. Uh, but when, when I'm facing serious jail time, you know, it was a wake up call. And, uh, and then I, I put out, you know, I can go to state penitentiary or I can go to the army, one or the other. I don't get a third choice. So I'm thinking Bubba, G.I. Joe, Bubba, G.I. Joe. So I decided to go with G.I. Joe. Yeah. And that that worked to save my life because I was finally separated from these negative influences in my life. So I see now the world is bigger and, and a different perspective. So when I came off active duty and came back to Philadelphia, I stayed away from the negative people and started trying to surround myself with positive people. And then that developed in me becoming this activist. You're very vocal about your story. So your family and friends know. It varies because I have certain siblings that supported me. Other ones that thought I should have just been very low key and quiet and not publicly talked about it. Uh, no one, my siblings did not know the abuse was going. They just thought I was this troubled kid. They didn't want to tell no one. I was ashamed of it. And they were, I were people that thought I was gay. And definitely, you know, anybody that's from the street knows if you're a street tough kid and all of a sudden you're having sex with men, you must be gay. And that means you're weak and that you're going to have problems on the street with your credibility because you're a punk. And the same way of going to jail. If, if guys can rape you in jail, guy, why do a lot of guys don't want to go to jail? We're not talking people that are in and out of jail. We're talking about the average person, why they don't want to commit crimes. Men. They want to go because they say, oh, you go to jail, you're going to get raped. You know, then you're a punk. You're someone's bitch. So I never told them. There was sometimes rumors about guys, and I would just deny it and blame it on other kids. But when I decided public came out, a lot of my family was saying, you know, you're embarrassing the family and the, and the last name, and you should have been very private about this. You shouldn't have went public. But I went public. Initially, I went private. I went to law enforcement. Uh, I went to the Philadelphia Police Department Special Victims Unit, and I told them everything that happened to me from 1976 to 1980. And so what happened was they kept saying statute of limitations, and then they made me go, the Philadelphia Police Department made me do an intake when I went in there. So I did an intake, and, and it was about three and a half page intake, and brief what happened, and I told them briefly. And they said, if you know anybody, whether they were offenders or enablers, include their name in too, and then we'll go over this when we interview. So I included the names of these politicians and these socialites. And these politicians were very powerful, influential politicians from the Philadelphia metropolitan area. 
And so they then when they read all that, they told me they couldn't take the interview because of statute of limitations. But what I told them is you could take the you could do you can't arrest anybody because of statute of limitation, but you could take the report. Because I wanted I didn't I felt wrong that 1980 report i wanted them to dig up the 1980 right. report and they told me that after seven years they destroyed those reports so that's why they can't find the 1980 report where i was arrested after beating wow. a robin edward Savage. so i wanted to do the report again but this time i i you know i wanted i'm going in the beginning stages of therapy i'm very emotional I, i'm trying to figure out the timeline of victimization that happened decades past and people involved. So I got into a big argument with them back and forth. So eventually, they said, eventually, because I would not take no for an answer. And I was becoming very angry and hostile. So they said, can you come back in three weeks? And I did. And at the time, District Attorney Seth Williams was there. And I thought he was my friend. And what he did is he ran interference special victim so they when i go there i see him going in to the building so i'm figuring why well, he's there to help me and i'm finally going to get justice and i was trying to keep low key so when i go in there they make me wait for about 35 40 minutes and then they take me upstairs where there's a room where a two-way mirror class and they before the interview goes to assign the investigators for special victims of philadelphia police said so that the request this is what they tell me at the request I filled out because I wanted an advocate there to witness this interview. I wanted film because I want to make sure there's no cover ups. There was a cover up in 1980. I wanted to make sure it wasn't going to get covered up again. And they prohibited anybody to participate in this. They would not let no one but me. And then at, when the interview got ready to start, they said at the request of District Attorney Seth Williams, you were prohibited from mentioning this person's name, that person's name, this person's name. And they went down to all the list of all the names I gave them, including wow. Jerry Sandusky's. And they said, you're only allowed to talk about one incident that occurred in New Jersey uh, with Edward Savitz. So the interview went on and, and I would start mentioning names and they'd stop the recorder and say, you can't talk about these people. And then they would go behind this glass door, two-way glass, then they come back and say, we're starting the interview again. And this went on for three three hours. After a while, I knew here we going, the cover-up is coming. Yep. So I said, you know, and I never trusted cops. You know, I, I there's good cops out there, but there's a lot of cops that are good that look the other way. For a career, they don't want to jeopardize their careers, especially when it comes to stuff like this. And then you had a lot of bad cops and politicians caught up in it. And I named police officers that were involved. I named politicians. I named lawyers. I named celebrities. I named a lot of people. And they kept trying to do that. So at some point, I said, that we're going again, 1980 all over again, and they're covering this stuff up. And I'm not going to allow it this time. It took me decades to come to, to, come to terms with it, to try to heal myself. And I'm going to do it the right thing now. My friends are dead. Some of them, men, some of them were murdered. Some overdosed on drugs. Some committed suicide. Some are in prison. And I'm going to do right. I'm going to fix this. Because in the Sandusky case, they were only making it out to be like 18 victims, all between the late 90s and early 2000s. I said, this guy was coming to Philadelphia, picking up runaways. And I told him where the, motel, the hotel he was taking them to and who he was hanging with and how they were taking them to football games and kids swapping. 
and nobody cared. Uh, they, they, they had a narrative with the Sandusky case to only these kids, and, and, and they were, uh, clearly they didn't want to hear anything. If it didn't happen on Penn State campus and, and just him by himself, they did not want to hear it. And they used the statute of limitations as to cut you, shut you down, where Sandusky had molested several hundred kids over a period of decades. And these kids were, he took kids trips to New Jersey, Philadelphia, State College, and God knows where else. And everywhere he went, he molested kids. Some of these kids don't want to talk about it because they'd rather do drugs and alcohol than admit, like, it's hard for, for boys or men that were victimized when they're boys to talk about it because it's not society thinks you're gay if you did that, especially if you did it willingly. Uh, I was on Dr. Phil and Dr. Phil said, you cannot make, give permission as a child to have a grown, a donut, a, a grown up have, cause I always, with the exception of one, with the exception of two times, for the most part, I kind of gave consent, meaning, hey, you're going to give me money and I'm going to do this. With the exception of two times where I was violently raped, with the exception of those two times, and Dr. Phil said it best when I was on his show with another Sandusky victim, uh, 11 and 12 and 13-year-old boys cannot give consent to an adult male. So, right, you, you know, can. you can't. Right. But, you know, so I, you know, why I blame myself because no one put a gun to my head. I just said, hey, you know, let's do this. And how much am I going to get out of it? And, you know, it was wrong, poor choices on my behalf, but I was vulnerable and they exploited that. And so I, you know, said. Oh, no, I was going to say, and also it's about grooming, right? I was going to like, say the same thing, too. Yeah. yeah. They try to gain the trust. So they. Well, they gave us stuff. Yeah, they gave us stuff that we did not have, and they, you know, they they rented cars. We didn't have a driver's license. They would rent us cars. And keep in mind, Atlantic City was at the time the equivalent of Las Vegas, and you know, casinos, glitz, hotels, money, drugs, alcohol, clothes. You know, this was glamorous for kids that came from poverty and survival mode. So, and they, and that was part of their grooming and coercion. And they knew, like, you know, um, they would take us to Great Adventure and these theme parks and, you know, trips and all that. And, and, you know, before that, we had nothing. I didn't know where my next meal was coming before that. You know, a lot of times we were so hungry, we had to shoplift to get a decent meal. So this became a cash cow, meaning even though they didn't have ATMs back then, this was like an ATM with no credit limit. Yeah, you go out, do stuff, and then you need more money. You go out, even though you say you ain't going to do that no more, and you take a vacation two or three weeks from it, then you need something, and you go back, and you do it again, and you do it again, and that's and then drugs and alcohol kind of numb the guilt and the disgust of it all, and then you stop doing it for a while, and then you go back to doing it again, and you know it, it was a, I was in survival mode, and and they definitely exploited that vulnerability. And they did it with impunity because society definitely looked the other way because these were people that were prominent, very prominent. I'm not saying all the perverts were prominent because you had dirty old men trying to pick us up. But the ones that were the main ones involved with me were very prominent with politics and big time money. And we were throwaway kids. We were going to be dead or in jail by the time we're 18. So who cares? And is that why you think 
that some people don't believe your story? Uh, is yeah, why is it that some people don't believe your story? Because they can't see politicians. Like America's got to wake up. It's it, you know, I'll give you for instance. They they can't see these people that are prominent people could be involved in such things. Like the mob. They said the mob would never do that. Listen, would you watch The Sopranos two or three episodes and you think you know organized crime? <laughs> organized crime was running a, a certain fraction of the Gambino crime family under Paul Castellano and a little bit under John Gotti were running these porno places up and down the East Coast. And these porno places were producing child pornography and setting up dates with underage boys and girls with a deviant pipes. And there was millions of dollars generated from this. People said, no, no, the mob would never do this. You watch, you watch Goodfellas and you think you know the mob. You don't know anything. Now, a lot of mobsters did not involve themselves with this. But keep in mind, mobsters, this was a cash cow for them. And for them, because they made millions of these porno places and gay clubs. Uh, where, meaning gay clubs, they were legitimate gay clubs. In, in, in Greenwich Village and, and the neighborhood in Philadelphia and other locations. But these neighborhoods where these gay clubs were were a breeding ground where underage boys could walk around and, and, and be cloaked by the banner of gayness where guys were picking up underage boys. They weren't gay because these guys had were married and had girlfriends on the side, a lot of them. So obviously if they were gay, why would they be married and have girlfriends on the side? So this was something else, a sickness that they suffered from. And, you know, uh, and it, it's, it's sad that society, what happens is no one can believe, just like when Jeffrey Epstein came forward, those people, they, they went out of the way to destroy those women. Bill Cosby, classic example. I, I always wish when I saw the Cosby show and I grew up with that as a young adult and Bill Cosby, just as, a comedian, you know, even as a child, I watched Bill Cosby. And I always said, if I had a dad, I would love to be him like Bill Cosby. So when these girls came out about Bill Cosby, America's dad, they're lying. These girls are lying. They're just juicers. They, they did this and they blamed these girls, these women. And Bill Cosby's innocent. Even today, you got people thinking Bill Cosby's innocent and these women are lying. You know, and they went out of the way to discredit and twist words and, 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 and twist facts. And that's what they do. So when I came out publicly and I went to the FBI interviewed me several times, you FBI, U.S. Postal Inspectors, uh, the Department of Justice, United States, they interviewed me several times. Uh, then I had uh, obviously the. Uh, Attorney General's Office, State of Pennsylvania, interviewed me. Penn State Campus Police interviewed me. Um, you know, I've been interviewed several times by various law enforcement sources, and at no point did my story ever change uh, about who did what and when. Especially as I'm going, starting to have these memories starting to make sense through therapy. And what happens is they went, they used news media outlets to discredit my allegations because I came out. I, keep in mind, I was, I was involved as a street criminal thug in New York City, Atlantic City, Camden, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and other locations. And I bumped 
heads with these other people to to degrees of separation. Uh, you know, and they said, there's no way, no way. Well, if, if you talk to some of these women that were on Jeffrey Epstein's island, keep in mind, Bill Clinton, they, they, people said Bill Clinton was on this island. And he went out of his way to say, I was never on that island. I only casually knew him. And then here, not only were you on that, you were on that island several times. They had to go get the flight and things and and both, but they tried to both Clinton, the Clintons, and everyone tried to discredit those women. They came forward, and they and there were celebrity types. So you know, if we have learned anything through these national scandals, that yes, prominent people and politicians and even presidents are some some of them are sick individuals, and then when people come forward, they go out of their way to destroy them. Just like here, do you think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? And a suicide, 24-hour jail cell, that's suicide, impossible, right before he's about to testify? No, they killed him. That's, come on, they killed that guy. And because they didn't, who knows what he's going to say? You don't know, you know, he may, because now he's locked up. He didn't believe he could be arrested. So that's powerful stuff with big people that do not want their names out there. So anyone like if society, if people think that Jerry, Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, then they are too, totally clueless. Because guess what? There's no way he's in a suicide in a federal detention center that's impossible to commit suicide. And you commit suicide right before you're about to give testimony to a grand jury. So this is what we're dealing with. And America really needs to wake up. My job's been threatened before. And uh, but times are different now. If I would have came out in the 80s or 90s or even early 2000s, I would have been fired from my job because they would have done what they had to do to shut me down. But now the organization's there, the laws are changing, lawyers are out there having a better understanding. It's a little bit harder. And so they can't threaten me anymore. But my job's been threatened several times because, hey, you're, you're talking too much. I said, well, I'm the victim. And this ain't hearsay. This is what that person did, and that's what this person did. And if people don't like it, they can kiss my ass. Because they, they know what they did. And if they if they feel I'm lying, sue me and let's get in the courtroom with this and see how that goes for you. Because, uh, like, you know, I, I stayed silent as my friends died and were murdered, committed drugs. Like, I see my friends out there in Kensington, which is the, right now, sadly, one of the opioid epidemic shitholes of, of the, our nation. And I see my friends out there that were victims of, of sexual abuse and trafficking. And I try to talk to them now, but they don't want to talk about it. the pain is so bad. They'd rather do drugs uh, to, to heroin and, and opioid related things than to deal with it. And it's very hard. And I truly try my best to get them to talk about it, but they do. I can't force them to do it. You know, I come out and, like, you know, I asked any of these news reporters to go on a public forum with me. I won't be, they think I'm going to beat the hell out of them, kill them. <laughs> and maybe back in the day, I would have. But the thing is, now I wanted the truth to come out. And I offered public forums on any news reporter to debate me. And I got facts now because we had, uh, have you read, I gave you some literature to read. And that was done by investigative journalists that do not have political ties 
to people that are, 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 are national news media outlets. And they did, through the Freedom of Information Act, that validates a lot of stuff that I said, that there's no way I can know this stuff unless I lived it. And I've asked them to debate me. None of them will debate me because they know that I'll tear them up in the debate with facts. But they'd yeah. rather just twist words and sell papers and try to discredit you because they can't intimidate me. So now what they do is they giggle and they laugh and say, oh, this guy said, anonymous source said that, and anonymous source said this. Well, come on, let's see, where are these anonymous sources? Let's see your, I'll, I put out names and everything. Let's see your anonymous sources and let's get this in a public forum and debate it. And, but they, they won't do it because they know that they'll get caught in their lies. I mean, you know, you've talked about your friends and how it's affected them in terms of substance abuse um, and, and mental health. How, does, how has it affected, I guess, your personal relationships, like family? The, it's, there's a certain family I don't talk to no more because they felt that it was disgusting for me to come forward. And, the, the, and I ruined, I did a hardship on the family because everyone's like, ew. Everyone, I can tell you this. I struggled in the aftermath. I struggled with some drug and alcohol abuse, domestic violence. I had failed relationships, failed op op uh, employment opportunities, failed academic things. I struggled with anger management because these are the side effects. Uh, finally, I got a woman that's been working with me. I won't mention her name or what she does, but she's my wife. And she goes above and beyond to work for me. And I've been very difficult because it's hard things to hear. Um, you know, her family reached out to her and said, how could you go out with a guy that had that type of past? Aren't you disgusted with it all? And But she's been supportive because a lot of people, like if a guy dates a woman and then finds out after they've been in a relationship that that she was a prostitute and doing drugs and everything. The, the friends of that lady, well, I mean, of the guy that's married her and say, ew, that's disgusting. How could you do that? And they, they you know, they, they do things to make them feel like this is disgusting and you shouldn't be with this person. You know, this person's disgusting. How can you kiss someone like that? And, you know, and that's how society looks at it. So but my wife has been with me a thousand percent supportive it's been an uphill battle because we've been together since 2014 but i i you know every relationship has failed before that uh because i wasn't ready to talk about stuff and you know people thought i was doing drugs again or or cheating and i wasn't doing that stuff i was just i wasn't ready to talk about it so yeah you know i would go into depression and have to be sad and you know, uh, self-isolate myself and, and not be involved. Like the holidays, always tough because it brings back, I never had a childhood. <coughs> My childhood was stolen from me. And so I never had one. And so when I see, I, I mean, I had a childhood, you know, but when you're, when you're raped at such a young age and sexually exploited and trafficked, you don't have the childhood that a normal child would have. And you smile, but like I'm like, even when I smile, sometimes many times I'm like that clown that smiles but is sad inside. That's me. And I and life was not been easy. I've lost many job opportunities, many friends, many relationships. Um, 
you know, and, uh, but now um, since therapy, I've been able to focus a little bit better and try to make sense of my life in the aftermath of my victimization. And, uh, you know, but there's sad days. There's days that are very hard on me and I feel like crying. And I, many times I do, but I, I try not to show it in public because it's, you know, people see it as weakness. So I know you said that you have kids and you even have a grand and a grandkid. I have grandchildren, yes. Yeah. Wow. I have, uh, I have four grandchildren. Okay. Um, so, but, but I'm not in their life. Like I probably should, because a lot of times I just keep to myself. Mm-hmm. I go over and say, you know, pop, pop and all, but you know, th- this abuse has really hurt. And so a lot of times I come over, but like, you know, it's like I'm looking for, I'm trying to find happiness and it's, I struggle with it. So like, I'll go see my grandchildren or, or my kids, but I wasn't in their life. Like I probably should have been. Uh, there's a song by Faith Hill and it makes me cry every time I hear it. It's called, where are you Christmas? I don't know if you ever heard that song. I've heard that song. Yeah. And, you know, I cry because especially during the holidays, it's very tough because like what happened to my Christmas, you know, and then in the aftermath, how they came at me to discredit me and try to intimidate me. And they didn't threaten me with violence because you can't threaten violent people with violence because that's, that may not work good with them. So what they do is they threaten, you know, and, and I struggle with all this stuff. I don't trust anybody. I mean, I trust certain people, but like, you know, society still doesn't see me as a victim. Some people like yourselves do, but a lot of people in society just see you. That's disgusting. You're disgusting. And you're not, you know, you, you're not a real victim because you were doing drugs and you were a prostitute. That's different than some guy that got molested by a priest. And I said, listen, in different circumstances, but at the end, I'm a child and I'm a, I'm a victim of somebody, you know, exploiting my vulnerability. And yes, there was multiple people in my case. Keep in mind, I was the first male ever to come out publicly and consistently. Not just some people came out in the 80s, early 90s, but then they faded away the minute pressure was put on them of some type of intimidation tactic or whatever. I, for years since 2011, I've been consistent and I and, and, and challenging and trying to get the system to change itself to better treat survivors of, of sexual child sexual abuse and human trafficking and and society has moved slowly law enforcement and social services it's not as moving at the pace that i would like it to be but it's moving yeah. in, the, in the direction that i'd like it to move so speaking of direction uh let's say 10 years from now what do you hope that the american public thinks about about sexual assault you know, men and sexual assault, just your story. In well, that one, men can be victims. People don't think men can be victims of rape. They just truly, just like they don't think men can be victims of domestic violence. But it happens all the time. But it's not the mainly thing to talk about in society. Not everybody in society, but the uh, the antithons think that, 
you know, this is not the manly thing. And if you're, if you're a victim of domestic violence and, and you talk about it, you're a punk and you're weak and you're, you know, and same thing with sexual violence. So I'm hoping that through education and public awareness, that people become more aware uh, that this is a problem. Now you're starting to see with the archdiocese case and the Boy Scouts case and the Penn State case and other cases that yes, boys can be victimized and and these things have been going on for a long time, but but it's don't ask, don't tell. And so and then of course having therapy and then men coming out to finally talk about it uh, and not be ashamed of it and not be judged because they chose to talk about it even though it's an un, a very unpleasant thing to talk about. Yeah, talking about the unpleasant things, I mean, that's the only way to move forward. It really is. It's like the Me Too movement. I was disappointed because the Me Too movement, I thought, would be more supportive to men, male victims of sexual abuse. But they're not. They, they, you know, for whatever reason, they just haven't been. And I'm disappointed. But the Me, Me Too movement have made great strides for women that were victimized by sexual abuse or, or some type of exploitation. But we need a Me Too movement for men to wake up That's America and, and get these Neanderthals that this do, you're gay. You know, when people tell me that shit, I feel like killing them. But I got grandchildren. I got a wife now. Back then, you know, things would have been different. But I got I, I didn't have nothing to live for back then because I was a, a dog waiting. They was beat so many times. I had no feelings and I didn't care what happened to me or anyone else. But now I, I have a reason to care because I, I've been through therapy and, and women organized against rape has given me that courage and strength to say that I am someone and I have value. So I don't want to do these things anymore. Like different people respond to how they deal with their victimizations, drugs, alcohol, domestic violence. I was always a violent criminal. That's how I responded to my victimization. In addition to alcohol and drugs, uh, I don't do alcohol, I don't do drugs, and I don't hurt anybody anymore. So I have to find other alternatives to release my, my post-trauma in a positive way. And that's why I go out the public speak now. I don't charge anybody anything. I do what I do for free. It's redemption. When I go to see God, I want him to know that I truly changed my life and I did it with the best of intentions. And hopefully that he'll forgive me, you know, when I, when my time comes to go see, you know, heaven. Uh, I did a lot of bad things in my life, and, and, you know, as far as violent crimes and, I even have regrets where they, I told you in the beginning, and that this was, we, you know, talked about during the um, Jeffrey Epstein case, that they got kids on small children, and they got them addicted to drugs and alcohol, and they gave them money to recruit other children. And I have a lot of regrets with that. We, they, they called that a finder's fate. And people say, how could you do that? Well, I mean, I didn't come up and say, I would tell the kids to what's going on. And then either they made a choice or didn't make a choice. I didn't just, you know, they were all straight tough kids, just as vulnerable as I was. And uh, so I have a lot of regrets for doing that. And, uh, you know, that's why I do what I do and everything I do. I, I don't charge 
uh, the Penn State case, they said, oh, he's lying. And he's only doing it for money. And one, I didn't sue anybody. And two, if I wanted to do it for money, I would have lied and said that Sandusky performed sexual acts on me inside Penn State campus. And I would have made money. In fact, the two prosecutors, the two lead prosecutors in, in the Penn State, Jeff, uh, the uh, Jerry Sandusky case, when I told them everything that happened, they said they can't use that. But they used the word, however. And they said, however, if you tell me that Jerry Sandusky performed anal and oral sex on you in Penn State campus, we can use that. And we'll allow you to testify in trial. And then in the aftermath of the trial, you, that uh, there'll be a lot of civil attorneys very interested in representing you. And I said, well, he didn't do anything like that. And whatever happened did not happen, involving him specifically, did not happen on Penn State campus. Like the, it happened at the Second Mile Charity. And they said, well, we can't use that. But if you, and then they go back to that, however, if you tell us this other story that we will use you. And then you pretty much in a nutshell, you can be, you can sue Penn State and make a lot of money. And I did not. I stuck to the truth. I've been lying to myself for years. Why would I try to open up my soul about these unpleasant things and then start with a lie? So I told him it's not about money. If I wanted to lie, I could have said Jerry Sandusky did this and Jerry Sandusky did that. And he did it on Penn State campus. And I would have made millions of dollars off it, just like the rest of them. I'm not saying they're lying, but they definitely, the prosecutors in, the, in that case, were definitely leading me and making kind of somewhat suggestions for me to alter my victimization to what was done and where it was done versus the truth. And, right. I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to tell the truth. It, it, I've been lying about it to myself for years, decades, and this is the time to put it all out. And if, if people don't like it, tough shit. That's all the time we have for you today. The story doesn't end here. We'll have part two of Greg's story for you on the next episode and a little surprise too. Look out for part two on social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, We'll let you know when it's available. Thanks for listening.